0: Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you were to go out today and just serve a, a cross-section of our society, I'm still certain that you would find, if you ask them, do you believe that there is life after death and it's a positive thing or it can be a positive thing, you would still get the majority of people to say, yes, I do. That's their hope anyway. And if you followed up with a question, do you think that you're going to be a part of it? They would likewise probably say, I am, or I think so, or I hope so. Something positive. And if you follow up with one more question and ask them why, no doubt they would say, because I'm a good person. It just makes sense, right? You get what you pay for kind of thing. Every world religion that I can think of has some form of, if you're good, good things will happen to you. And it's not absent in Christianity. There's just a big, big caveat, and that is, what's the definition of good? You ask Jesus... And he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And this this sermon that uh, we have today, by the end of it, Jesus is going to say, be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard for good isn't the upper 50th percentile, or the upper 70th, or 90th, or 99.9. It is perfection. Because you have a holy God. That's what he made us to be. That's what he would expect if you're going to come in under your own merits and be with him in heaven. So the last thing you should say, ever, if somebody asks you, or if you're witnessing, the last thing you should say, you know, is, I'm good, or you need to do this, you need to do that. You undermine the gospel when you do that. The Sermon on the Mount, especially the section that we read today, It's kind of rough, isn't it? I mean, it gives you these standards about the law, thou shall not kill. We know we've called somebody raka somewhere along the line. Raka means empty head. And and to be honest with you, I've never called anybody an empty head. Some other kind of head maybe, but never an empty head. And then the thing about lust... I mean, unless you were very impaired, you you did it. You, you probably do it. Such high standards, and then and then if you think that sin is like no big deal, Jesus gives you something to compare it to. You know, if if your hand causes causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. And we would all be, if we followed those directions, and took them literally. We, we would all be without hands and without eyes. We would be in a rough, rough shape, right? But I know of only one thing that I can cut off that's going to stop me from sin. And you cut right about here. This has got to go. So the Sermon on the Mount... It is giving you a sense of how God made human beings to be and what he still holds as the standard for eternal life. We were created, believe it or not, as as beings who would just never hate. It wouldn't occur to us to hate. We would just love and want the best for each other. We were created sexual but there was no distortion of that sexuality at all it would be for the person that was our spouse it would be just for love and procreation that's what it was we would have marriages that would last a lifetime and not just because you know we'd don't want to give up or we're sticking it out, you know. It's because, because we're happy. And we could be honest and be so in a gentle way. And that's just picking on the things in this text. That's what we were. That's what we expect. But what are we? A lot of people looked at the law, Moses' law, for its initial purpose only, and thought thought that was enough. You know, the general curb of society. I couldn't help but think about the rich young ruler. Remember him? When when he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him somewhat of a stunning question to us. Just keep the law. And he wasn't lying. He didn't... He didn't say to him, just keep the law perfectly, which is what he really was intending. But the guy, when he heard it, he believed he did it. He says, I have kept these things all my life. And yeah, you know, I I can look at this and say, to this date, I have not murdered anybody. I can say, to this date, I have not had an adulterous affair. I am married to the woman I was married to originally. And I rarely lie. <laughs> you can fool yourself into thinking that you keep the law. But Jesus' sermon here is meant to for its shock and awe. It's to hurt everybody, no matter what you think about yourself. It's to point out something about you that is your biggest flaw so you can see it and herd everybody to the same conclusion. That conclusion is, I can't do that. I haven't done that. I guess I'm not that good a person. And he kind of leaves them hanging there, which is really kind of, I don't know, that's rough. He leaves them hanging with that conclusion until there is a solution to their problem. And the solution is going to be Jesus. Back in the Old Testament, it says there's no one who does good and seeks after God. No one, not even one. But Jesus is going to change that. He is going to be the one, the only. And... If we are not saved by grace, if we are not saved by being connected to Jesus, then we are not saved at all. Because nobody's going to stand before God and say, look at me, I'm good. He's going to see every flaw, and those flaws are not made up by any sort of extraordinary acts of righteousness. In the end, it is a gift. God insists that it's a gift. You don't want to muddle it up by saying, but I do this and that and this and that in addition to it. No, I do nothing. I don't even really come to it by faith. God gave me the faith. I am saved by Jesus, not that I am good. And so Jesus sets us free from the law, Paul actually uses those words, and they do seem, at first when you read them, uh, kind of dangerous to say, we are set free from the law. What it means is you are set free from saving yourself by the law, but doesn't mean that you have no reason to follow the law at all. You got some really, really good reasons. How about these? I want to do what's right because I love God. That would be great. That's what God would like. I'm going to refrain from things I know that are wrong because I love God. Or, also great, I'm going to refrain from doing things that are against God's will because I love people. And, and I don't wish to hurt, even if they don't even know about it. I don't even wish to hurt in theory other people and then there's a sense of identity and I think this is the big one first or second anyway on this list who am I? who am I now? who are you now? you are a son or a daughter of the living God you are a citizen of heaven. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of things that you are, and you got to embrace that or remember that's what you are, that's who you are. And because you are that, then another motive is you are here, like we talked last week, to advance the kingdom of God. And you don't want the acts of the sinful nature to diminish that for you in any way, however big or small. And then, if those aren't enough, there is the last one. Even though you are redeemed by Jesus Christ, you and I, we do have to face a Judgment Day experience. And that Judgment Day experience is not looking at whether you believe in Jesus or not. That Judgment Day experience is looking at your life and how you've lived it. It isn't there to cast you aside and out of eternal life because it's already determined that you are saved by Jesus. It is there to either reward you or not reward you, and you would want to be rewarded. So there's five things, and I would argue five powerful reasons for, for us to still care about what God says is good or not good and to pursue it with our full ability and with the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us. So taking those motives, let's just think about the few things that came up in this sermon. How do you practically approach them? First, the one of Anger slash murder. Well, don't kill anybody. That would be a top. There is such a thing as righteous anger, right? God gets righteously angry. But as far as acting out in any way on that, that becomes God's thing to do. And we want ourselves, then, to be able to manage whatever kind of problem we might have with anger. Some of us, God, you're so chill, it's not a big problem for you, right? Others of us, you know, we fall somewhere along the spectrum from being able to be provoked to anger to really having a serious problem with it. What do you do? For one, if there are situations that cause you to get angry easily, try to avoid them. Sometimes you can't avoid them. Now, you know, thinking about myself, that really kind of hits hard. And I try to manage better, but that means I can't drive. I can't watch the Packers, which today isn't a problem. Um, and I can't golf. Those three things. What are my pastimes? That's that's about it right there, you know? Um, You do try to put yourself away from anger-producing situations and people, but it's not going to be entirely the solution. Sometimes you're going to be in that situation, and you just have to walk away walk away bigger though might be remembering your motives that list you know I, i'm i'm sure a lot of you could produce this list given enough time but you need to have this list like right there, right when, right when anger is about to take control of you, you need to remember who you are, and you need to know that you love God. So when you hit that ball and it hooks into the woods, you just, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I didn't need that ball. Um, something along that line. Or like my wife says, Tom, they can't hear you. Don't yell at the TV. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I don't yell at TVs. And then there is, you know, the the strategy of just finding outlets. And I think one of those outlets, especially for long simmering anger, is prayer. Now, do you get the sense in just talking about this that you're ever going to get rid of it altogether? I don't. I don't. Should you get the sense that you can grow and actually become better at it? And I think you should say, I I will. You know, our confession of sins, like the one we use today, it can give you the impression that you can't make progress because... Because you're saying, I I confess my sins, you know, thought, word, and deed. And and the ones you are probably going to are the ones you have gone to maybe all your life. Right? But it isn't trying to communicate to you that that you can't be more in control of, of anger. You certainly can be. Trust God and work with Him. The same is true with sexuality. Same things that we've already mentioned, avoiding temptation, remembering motives, that kind of thing. But also to see the person that you might be tempted to lust after as a human being, not as an object of beauty or desire or whatever. A human being. And if you are married, to remember the things that you love about your spouse, the moments, the time together, the touches, the things that are sweet to you remember those and then when it comes to a marriage, yeah. God had this ideal for marriage, and then there was the reality on the ground with people in their sinful nature with Moses. And it became such a poisonous thing that God did say to Moses, and God did say this, that, that you may give your wife a certificate of divorce. That was a concession only in this sense. He, he didn't want people to stick around and have something more sinful within their marriage, than to break it up in some cases and and incur the sin of breaking up that marriage. Yes, his ideal stands still. You break up a marriage, you have, you have sinned, your spouse has sinned, there's only one exception to it, that of marital infidelity. Um, in some cases, though, if you let it, you get to such a point of poisonousness that that it has to be let go. But remember here, people sin. We are not now concocting this this higher form of self-discipline, this higher form of saving yourself through obedience, we are just acknowledging. How are we going to manage our sinful nature? So in respecting God's view of marriage, we should have boundaries and respect them, right? Work hard at having your spouse be your friend and your partner with the goal always of working on things and trying to get it to reflect as much as possible what God envisioned at the beginning. And then truth. Once again, you avoid situations where you are tempted to lie. And a lot of times, you lie because you're trying to avoid some other kind of consequence. Become a person who is known for truth. And if you have to say something that is not not going to shine good light on yourself, let it be in a form of a confession. I know I messed up. I I did it. Please forgive me. And in the context of marriage, you will have to forgive quite a bit. And then when it comes to, you have to say something to somebody else, and it's not going to shine good light on them. There is a kind way to give the truth. You know, Uh, A a way that you can be constructive and helpful and not tear them down. And you'll get a sense for what that is. So in the end, just with these four things, can we do better? Yes. Will we do perfectly? No. Is God asking you to do perfectly? No, he knows you're not. You never really had a shot at it. Sinfulness includes sinful nature. You were already failing this test when you were just a fertilized egg. You certainly have failed it since. But thanks be to God, the Sermon on the Mount is in the context of the whole of the Bible. And we are led to understand that eternal life, very real thing comes one way. It comes as a gift through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.